0: Hello folks, this is Rob, and I wanted to come in at the front of the episode here to issue a correction and an apology for a thing that I missed that was very important in the last episode. I think I called Katie Kelly once, maybe, last podcast. The name is Katie, although I don't know how important it is because she's imaginary anyway, but I just wanted to make sure to clear up that inconsistency. The other thing that was lost in the madness was I should have noticed right away that Veronica's chapter wasn't epistolary in any way. Like, there was no even... If you squint at Jughead's chapters, you can assume that he's writing it on his laptop. He's got to be writing something. But Veronica, there's just no explanation. It's just narrated it's just a just prose no framing device fiction so the situation we find ourselves in in terms of format is unbelievably crazy some things are journal entries some are ostensibly writings there's definite documents and text messages and shit and like yeah archie too what are his chapters like this th- book doesn't actually have a format it's just whatever the fuck it wants at whatever time and thus the perfect riverdale tie-in novel Welcome back, one and all, to Pros and Cons, where I am covering Riverdale's lovely tie-in YA fiction prose novel book, Thing by Mikkel Ostow Riverdale the day before. Today we are doing chapters 6, 7, and 8. So what do you say, how about we listen to my mind buckle under the pressure of trying to reconcile what I read with some kind of reality? Chapter 6 is a Jughead chapter, which begins with Juggy rhapsodizing about the historical and landmark cred being swang by Pop's diner. It's such an important place in Riverdale's history, its culture, etc, etc. And he reveals that he has a significant running burger tab, which he intends on paying someday but doesn't know how the hell he might actually do that. He mopes about how he and his dad aren't really seeing much of one another lately, on different schedules. And adding that between Archie and dad is everyone just fading away from me. Jughead is incredibly self-involved, and that is a very faithful thing as adaptations go. In the morning, probably the morning before Jason Blossom's death, but who knows? We don't really bother to establish timeline stuff in this, which should be fine because the title of the fucking book is Riverdale the day before, but we freely go to other time periods as well. So like, it's just, oh God, since it doesn't say when it is, it's safest to assume it's the day before, but who knows? Jughead spots Jason Blossom texting furiously next to Pop's diner. Jason of course ignores Jughead who goes in and orders a cheeseburger with and I quote important that we get this right pickles tomatoes maybe an onion but no lettuce because lettuce he says is just water in crunchy form and he goes on to say that hamburger and he goes on to say that hamburger buns ought never to be toasted note he said maybe an onion that is not a slice of onion a ring of onion, a quarter cup of onion, or any other designated measurement. The only reasonable conclusion from the statement he made is that this absolute goblin puts an entire onion on a burger. If there's onion at all, it is the whole goddamn thing. Look, folks, my job is to try to take this text seriously. And the text says that sometimes Jughead puts an onion on a cheeseburger. And it's our responsibility to live with that knowledge now. Jughead asks Pop if Archie's been around at all, which, wouldn't you know it, he actually hasn't for a few days. Pop jokes about, oh, shouldn't I be asking you what he's up to? And Jughead during this notes that pop is and i quote playing casual but taking in every word every micro expression pop doesn't miss a thing what the fuck is this hyper acute sherlock-esque attention to the minutiae of teen boy behavior about with pop it is a very weird thing and it gets even weirder in context because jughead notices it and says, like, oh, he's paying such close attention like a fucking mind superhero. But he doesn't speculate on why or comment on how weird it is. And, like, if I noticed someone going into their fucking mind palace about me and my friend, like some old dude, I would be curious as to what was going on. But this particular reverie is interrupted by Dilton Doily, so our survivalist nut job and scoutmaster who comes in. Jughead comments on how, quote, predictable that is, or he is, unclear, out loud. Dalton says that in fraught times, one must be prepared for all contingencies, and that one shouldn't bury oneself in make-believe stories, indicating Jughead's laptop. They continue going back and forth a little bit, but sort of end up mutually recognizing that they're these weird, gloomy losers that bum people out, and there's a bit of solidarity there dilton posits that it is very significant that the fourth of july holiday is overlapping with a blood moon so we can add astrology believer to the list of quirky characteristics that dilton doily has despite that i'm reasonably sure it never comes up in the show of course i am a season behind maybe there's all kinds of astrology shit with maybe dilton Is Riverdale's own maple syrup, Nostradamus? I don't know. Pop expounds about how Riverdale has some dark history, which we're very used to from the show by this point, and gets onto a tangent on how he's served some celebrities at his restaurant in the past. Even some presidents. Plural. Some, he says, on the campaign trail, and some, as he tapers off with a thousand-yard stare, during ellipsis less happy times i for one really want to know what sort of down on his luck president of the united states or presidents of the united states i should say came into pops to drown their sorrows in burgers and milkshakes multiple presidents found themselves in this diner in Riverdale when they were having a hard time? <gasps> <What? laughs> oh, God. I... Okay. I have to keep going. He then goes on to name drop Neil Armstrong and Madonna and a tour bus full of her dancers as previous customers. But the most famous, or dare I say, infamous guests left a dollar tip which is now framed on the wall. A strange couple with Texas accents. And I'm quoting Pops on this. The whiff of death about them. Pop Sr. apparently went to give this couple their tab. And was struck with a vision. A vision that showed that they would meet a bad end. These two. These people were of course... Bonnie and Clyde you know like from Bonnie and Clyde fuck Jesus Christ this book it's like I, I'm almost tempted to say it's crazier than Riverdale but like if there's more than five minutes past after you see an episode of Riverdale you forget half of the crazy shit like it has this uh, cloaking effect on your mind we also learn that there's a local Loch Ness-like cryptid thought to stalk the banks of the Sweetwater River, and its name is, of course, Sweetie. Obviously, Dilton Doyle believes that Sweetie is quite a possibility. It may really be real. The format-shattering madness then continues with a text exchange between Jason Blossom and his dad. Apparently a serpent of some sort is on the way to do some sort of drug deal thing with Jason, it's implied, and Cliff expects his son to cooperate fully. Then we get Jason and Polly doing some text messages planning to run away together. This chapter did in a tiny way advance the Jason gonna get murdered plot, It did that bookending a gigantic chapter-length digression about celebrity sightings, cryptids, and Pop's family as some sort of oracular institution, and holy shit, what a fucking waste of time this is. But then, what do we expect, really? What do we expect? Chapter 7, Veronica Lodge, ladies and germs, let's get ready to rumble. She's doing a private spin class with some notable coach in a three-bike Peloton studio built off of her bedroom. Sure. Are they on a boat, though? I don't see how there would be any way to tell if they were or were not currently on a boat. So we've got a boatinger's paradox here. ...that we just have to deal with. Nick St. Clair is there, being leery and disgusting, as you might expect. And Veronica, of course, has to internally, mentally excuse this behavior... ...because of prequalitis. So that's fine. Jesus Christ. Nick asks Veronica out, but she says she'll think about it. I'm sure it'll go just fine. Smithers shows up in the wrong part of the house with a bunch of documents he's, in his words, disposing of, but takes them to Hiram's study instead of the recycling. And this is played as very mysterious and suspicious, but it's like, how is there a scandal with Hiram Lodge, noted businessman, not shredding documents, keeping a hold of documents in his study? Of course he keeps hold of documents in his study. That's what it's for. It would be more mysterious if he was shredding stuff that was supposed to be kept for record to remove all record of certain things happening or something. The dude is just keeping records, just keeping his notes or whatever. And that's normal. But the butler is lying, trying to tell his daughter that he's not going to keep the documents. Oh, these documents are going away. I'm shredding them then takes them into the study. What is going on? Can any of you tell me what's actually happening here? Uh, Is there some sort of, like, common grift or scandal that involves keeping documents that you're supposed to not keep? That you're supposed to have had, but then dispose of later? I don't know. It's breaking me. We then get a text exchange between Moose and Midge, or rather... Just Midge trying to get a hold of Moose, asking if they're still on for the movie at the Twilight Drive-In and if he could meet up earlier. He does not answer, and eventually she just hopes to see him there. It's time for the Verona Counter. This is not... I was about to say it's not as long a chapter as the last one. I think I'm just more used to waiting through the brand names and shit now. Because it's actually 10.5 pages... As opposed to, um, I think, a little bit less than that in her previous chapter. Anyway, three celebrity names on these 10.5 pages, two film references, 15 brand names. Not as many, not as dense, but still absolutely ridiculous. And my personal favorite, three literary references in this chapter, but two of them are, are to the Great Gatsby. She couldn't get through ten and a half pages without mentioning Gatsby twice. Ah, <laughs> uh, shit. Second part, and I apologize. I should have put this on last time. Uh, at the end of each Veronica counter, we're going to track the Veronica Index of Referential Density, or VRD, Vird, V I R D. Chapter three. She had a 2.7 verd, meaning approximately 2.7 repeating references and brand names and celebrity name drops per page. Chapter 7 had 2.19 verd, so a slight incremental, not probably statistically significant decrease in referential density for this chapter. Chapter 8, Archie is feeling guilty about hiding his affair with Miss Grundy from his dad. uh, This is going to just be in this whole book. Uh, Anyway, he points out that Principal Weatherby, and I cannot stress this enough, keeps the back entrance of the school unlocked at all hours. So that the football team can use the gym and the weight training room at all hours. Without supervision. What? What? A high school is simply unlocked through the middle of the night, all the time. Can you even imagine the drug deals, murders, vandalism, and probably cult rituals that would result, were that really the case, in fuckmothering Riverdale? I'm speechless. I... Have no idea how to reconcile this knowledge with the reality of the show. The school is still standing. It is not a burnt out husk. And yet, Riverdale is Riverdale. So, Archie must be wrong. He must be delusional in some way. And yet, he freely enters and exits the school. So, either the door is truly unlocked or he's some kind of. Archie's a ghost. Archie's a stupid sex ghost. <laughs> Oh, my God. I just, yeah. He's picking up some blank sheet music from the music room, but runs smack into Cheryl Blossom. See, look, it's not just the football team doing the after hours sneaking around. Weatherby, you fucking madman. This unlocked door anarchy is rearing its head instantly after Archie introduces it. Cheryl! Is trying to deliver Jason's varsity jacket, which I don't remember. Is it significant in some way? I know that it ends up containing the video of his murder, but like, that doesn't exist yet. He has not yet been videoed being murdered. Because he's alive right now. So... I am confused about this. Delivering the jacket. Why is she delivering the... Maybe someone knows. Maybe someone in the audience knows. Why is Cheryl trying to deliver a jacket? Or why is that the lie she makes up for Archie? She's got Jason's varsity jacket. And somehow that's important. Like, I swear to God, the author just remembered that the jacket was important in the show, but didn't think about how? And just put this in here? I don't fucking know. I don't know. I'm I'm so, so tired. (laughs) Cheryl helpfully connects the, quote, plot threads... Can we really call them plot threads? They're threads of something, anyway. By reminding Archie that Jughead sure spends a lot of time at Pops, causing Archie to realize he's made plans with Grundy that double-book his plans with Jughead! Cheryl also mentions FP being at Pops and Jughead's dad is not exactly an early morning person, so it's very weird that he's up at this time of day. Dun-dun-dun! Outside, Archie sees that the football field has been completely... Pincushioned with plastic forks. Classic high school prank. He suspects the Baxter High Ravens, their rival, and I believe the football team from Sabrina. That's nice. He sees Kevin Keller under the bleachers with Moose, so I guess we know why Moose isn't answering his text messages from Midge, assuming timeline is like anything in this book. We then get an email from Jason to Cheryl, apologizing for putting her through so much Thanking her for all the help she's given. And he admits that the breakup with Polly was a ruse. And then, at the bottom of this email, there is a bracketed all caps DELETE, which is the best thing that's been in this book so far. That DELETE prompt is my favorite thing in the book. Here's what that does, folks. It allows this email to either have been sent or not sent by typing bracket delete bracket. The author has avoided having to think through if the sending of this email would have been possible in the continuity (laughs) of the show and had a plot impact. So this page is just All it actually is, is a look into the private thoughts of Jason Blossom, a non-POV character. And this look into his thoughts is guaranteed by how it's set out to not have any impact on the plot. Instead of figuring out if this email could function in the continuity, she just wrote delete. It's sublime in its blatancy. But... It's worth noting that the way that it wastes our time and doesn't have plot impact really doesn't set it apart from most of the content of this book. I mean, seriously, let's take a look back for a second. That's the end of this chapter. What the fuck has happened in this book? Jughead is lonely. Archie's evasive about his relationship with Grundy. Betty's excited about her internship. Veronica really, really, really loves brand names. And Jason Blossom is nervous about his escape, which came up like literally this chapter how many pages do you think it would take to get that stuff out of the way in a satisfying manner again archie's feeling guilty jughead's feeling lonely betty's excited veronica is veronica and jason blossom may be in trouble maybe less than 96 pages maybe because it's been 96 pages and that's all that's happened so far but you know what do i know Stay tuned next time for part two, Afternoon, which begins with Betty, Jughead, and Veronica. So not as much horrible grossness, although Nick St. Clair provides plenty of that. And we do get a Veronica chapter, which is important. So for pros and cons, and for some fucking reason, I've been Rob, and I will see you all next time.